Hi everyone, just a quick message before we start today's episode. Join us on May 14th for ATS 2021, our annual conference that showcases the latest research and innovations in respiratory medicine. Discover breakthroughs in science, medicine, and patient care. Register now at conference.thoracic.org. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Michael Lanspa. Thank you for joining us in a very special Out of the Blue podcast. Today we're going to do an overview of some of the most interesting and impactful COVID papers from 2020. I'm joined today by Dr. Sanjay Chotamal, an assistant professor and provost's chair in molecular medicine at the Lee Kong Chian School of Medicine at NTU Singapore. Dr. Chotamal is also an associate editor for the Blue Journal and among many other positions has served as steering committee member for the ATS-led International Task Force on COVID Management. Welcome, and thank you for joining me. Thank you, Mike. So I thought we could start by pointing out that early in the year, early in 2020, there was a lot of uncertainty about what sort of things that made one more susceptible to COVID. And you had highlighted a few articles that had explored the role of uh, ACE2 receptors in SARS-CoV-2 infection. Yeah, Mike. uh, In fact, at the blue, I probably think three articles that we published exemplify that point quite nicely. I think the first one was probably the most elaborate by Zhang and colleagues who evaluated ACE2 expression in human airway epithelium. And uh, what was particularly good about that study was that they used invasive bronchoscopic sampling from the trachea all the way through to large and small airways and recruited both smokers and non-smokers. They also used multiple approaches, microarrays, RNA sequencing, single cell transcriptomics, and pretty much found that trachea and large airways had similar ACE2 expression, but there were lower expre- there was lower expression in the smaller airways, but many of the cell types in the smaller airways all expressed ACE2. But an additional interesting finding from that study was that ACE2 expression appeared upregulated by having a smoking history. And this particular finding was reinforced by a second article that we published by Kai and colleagues which uh, in this case used existing RNA sequencing data sets to address the same question. And they found an increased ACE2 expression in lung tissues, an upregulation in ever smokers. But here it's important to remember they also found increases in the protease TMPRSS2 and furin. And that just serves as a reminder to us that it's not all about ACE2. There are other entry factors that we need to consider when it comes to SARS-CoV-2 infection in the human airway. A further point about Kai and colleagues' study is that they did extend that to try and evaluate a relationship between ACE2 and COPD status. And while they found an increased trend in ACE2 and COPD sufferers, they found inconsistency in the data sets. And in fact, when they adjusted for smoking status, that effect was attenuated. So this suggests to us that maybe the effect is due to smoking and there is this possible susceptibility uh, in smokers, which we know now in large population studies has emerged. And I think definitely more mechanistic studies in this particular area are needed. And finally, I think the third study uh, was slightly different. And this was published by Chang and colleagues. And they used air-liquid interface cultures from nasal nasal tissues obtained from asthmatics and really uh, found that rhinovirus infection of these epithelial cells almost primed 
uh, those cells for higher ACE2 expression and potentially greater risks of SARS-CoV-2. So there are multiple factors really when you take all three of those papers together that may be contributing to expression of ACE2 and, and therefore susceptibility to SARS-CoV-2 infection. But clearly, we're just at the beginning of understanding this. And a lot of this data emerged all the way through the pandemic with dynamically changing data sets and their availability. Yeah, that's an excellent point about the evolving understanding of ACE2 as well as the risk factors of smoking. I remember when COVID-19 first was being reported out of China, there was a lot of emphasis on the increased susceptibility of smoking males. And it's nice to see a short time later that we have three articles that offer some mechanistic explanation for why these smokers were at increased susceptibility for getting COVID-19. Absolutely. And I think the I think the emerging large population studies that have been collated throughout the pandemic, uh, some of which are reporting now and some that will report, um, just do indicate that there is that increased risk of developing symptomatic COVID in smokers. And there is still ongoing uncertainty on whether that relationship does truly extend to COPD or not. And I think time will tell us that. And hopefully that'll give us more clarity about who is at risk and, and how we can best mitigate that. I don't know if you remember, but back in March and April of 2020, there was a lot of uncertainty about ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers as regards to whether or not they might increase or decrease one's susceptibility to COVID-19. Knowing what we know now, how would you interpret those concerns? Well, I, I certainly remember that. I think lots of even colleagues who were on those drugs were calling me up and asking me whether they should stop them. So uh, I think the theoretical, it was a, really a theoretical concern because of the, uh, you know, renin angiotensin aldosterone pathway and the role of ACE inhibitors and ARBs. I think uh, while randomized control trials still remain ongoing, what's become very clear is that use of ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers are not associated with any increased risk of COVID-19 and that they're safe drugs, they should be continued even in patients who get COVID. That I think we're very clear about now, and I think we're very confident with, and I think the randomized control trials when they report will give us further light on that early confusion. Right, right, I agree. Part of the initial fear that surrounded SARS-CoV-2 was that it appeared to be highly transmissible, but initially we weren't exactly sure how transmissible it was. And the Blue Journal actually had quite a few articles that addressed that question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think viral transmission was one of the key hot topics really early on because uh, people were around the world were uncertain uh, when the virus was going to arrive on their shores, how it was going to arrive, and then how it would spread. So really, yes, we did publish a couple of interesting pieces. I think one of them is from Yang and colleagues, which looked at viral detection across environmental fomites. But what was particularly good about this study and what I liked was that they evaluated both symptomatic and asymptomatic patients. And they looked at everything from N95 masks to water cups, to cell phones, to environmental surfaces in the rooms, washrooms. And they did this before and after disinfection procedures. And they found multiple environmental samples to be positive. And in fact, when those samples were viral positive, they, they correlated quite well with nasopharyngeal viral loads that weren't necessarily related to symptoms. And that was really, um, I think a remarkable finding in that an asymptomatic individual could in fact um, uh, spread virus through environmental fomites. But one reassuring thing to come out of that study was that disinfection was very eff effective at eliminating virus. And so disinfection procedures are obviously of, of prime importance in controlling spread. 
The other two studies, uh, first by Chang and colleagues, assessed the time kinetics of viral clearance, which I think now we know a lot about, but this, this study was published very early on in the pandemic in a small patient group. And they showed about three days from symptoms to positive test and incubation of about five days, seven days to achieve viral negativity, but critically, 50% of the patients, and that's eight out of the small number of 16 that they studied, remained viral positive even after symptom resolution. And that really tells us that viral shedding can carry on far beyond uh, the symptoms. And we now know that that does not necessarily imply infectivity. Third study by Huang and colleagues focused on critically ill patients. And really the key findings here were that they found high viral loads and prolonged shedding in the lower respiratory tract. And this suggests that lower respiratory tract sampling may be as important as upper respiratory tract sampling in those who are critically ill. And in that very same study, they, they actually found viral RNA in a whole range of other clinical specimens from gastric juices to anal swabs to urine and to conjunctival swabs, illustrating that, that you know the virus can be picked up anywhere, particularly in the critically ill, and that it can uh, go systemic. So I think taken together, those three studies ranging from early in the pandemic all the way through to environmental fomite presence of the virus all tell us the same thing about spread and the importance about viral kinetics and time frame, and most importantly about the prolonged shedding of this virus, which does not necessarily imply infectivity. You know, I think these studies are so important because there was so much uncertainty early on about how to design hospital practices to prevent transmission. And, you know, throughout 2020, we'd seen a lot of hospital policies change in response to studies like these. Uh, for example, demonstrating when people peak for infectivity and when people are still transmissible. So I think you're absolutely right there, Mike. I think there were clear changes in hospital practices, masks, early identification and isolation of patients, use of PPE, and environmental disinfection, as we've just discussed. But I think another group of articles that were published in the Blue Journal are also important for showing um, on, uh, the non-detection of the virus. So a good example would be in dialysis fluid in patients receiving CRRT, even though their plasma was positive, and also the inability to detect the virus in gas condensate of the membrane oxygenators in patients receiving ECMO. So while we are concerned about the virus being in multiple places and on multiple surfaces, there were important findings where it thankfully was not found in, in certain settings that, that in fact helped us with regard to not going two in one direction with regards to changes dramatically at a, over a short period of time in hospital practice. That's absolutely right. And it's a shame we can't discuss in more detail all of the many studies that have looked at the different varieties of virus transmission that were submitted to the Blue Journal. Uh, but one thing that I thought was interesting about transmission is that you'd selected a couple of articles that were uh, relevant for lay people regarding face mask utilization and social distancing. Yeah, I, I, I chose two specific studies because I think they, they apply to everyone, out, even outside the respiratory community. And I think the first one um, is focused on aerosols. And we know that face, masks, face mask use and social distancing are the corner, cornerstone of preventing SARS-CoV-2 spread. And in fact, many singing events around the world, in, especially in religious settings, ended up with the formation of clusters and even super spreading events. And so this very interesting paper by Ekternak and colleagues evaluated the impulse dispersion of aerosols during speaking and singing. And uh, they did this by using professional singers who sang Beethoven and um, 
and really looked at in detail how singing and speaking vowels versus text at different levels of loudness affects this aerosolization spread. They, they actually uh, added to this breathing and coughing tasks. And they found in general that aerosols propagated to about 1.4 meters and um, sometimes further and were mainly in the frontal plane. So that was a, a very practical proof that there was aerosol spread in which direction mainly and, and really why you know, face masks and social distancing are remain the cornerstone of, of our management against uh, SARS-CoV-2 spread. The second uh, piece I thought was also interesting from a group in Hong Kong led by uh, Wong and colleagues, uh, where they looked at public interest in face mask usage. And they did this by evaluating Google search trends and related the Google search trends to cases of COVID-19. So they looked at 42 geographic regions across six continents and in fact showed an inverse correlation between search volumes and case numbers. And that indicates that an engagement of the public's interest in face mask usage could well represent an independent risk factor to improve mask compliance and limit spread. And so while this paper doesn't provide direct evidence that face masks work, it does provide evidence that interesting your population can have independent and positive effects on the spread of SARS-CoV-2. You know, I just have to say one feature that I absolutely love about the Ectronac study is that they used Ode to Joy as the song that they were studying. <laughs> uh, we, you know, we had a lot of publications last year that detailed the clinical features of COVID-19. What were some of your favorites? Yeah, so uh, I think there were there were so many um, papers that we obviously can't cover all of them. So the ones I selected really came out at different phases of the pandemic because, you know, information that, that we published in March really before COVID became widespread in the US, for example, interested a lot of our readers into how this clinic, how the clinical features of COVID looked. So really, um, I think the first study by Feng and colleagues, which uh, evaluated over 400 patients in three Chinese centers, again, published very early in the pandemic, looked at clinical characteristics, laboratory findings, CT imaging, and their treatment. And, and this was of great interest to people, especially in countries where COVID hadn't arrived yet. And they found that, you know, comorbidities were associated with severity, which we now know, and that ACE inhibitor and ARB use based on our earlier discussion was actually highest in the moderately sick patients rather than the most severe group. And multiloba involvement was associated with greater severity and the need for treatment. And really an age of above 75 was an independent risk factor for mortality. The second clinical study that I think was also um, of great value was a large characteristic study looking at critically ill patients from a Chinese center and really showed again this high mortality signal in older patients and this pattern of lymphocytopenia that we now all very well recognize in association with COVID. So I think both of those studies were really some of the first clinical data that we got um, published in the Blue Journal well before the disease was widespread in the US. So it gave people and our readers an insight of what really to expect when it arrived. The third study uh, was one of my favorite ones we published throughout the pandemic, which was quite a unique study, which was an important attempt by investigators in the UK to evaluate the physiological, hematological, and imaging correlates of severe COVID-19 pneumonia. So in this study, Patel and colleagues assessed clinical and radiological data 
uh, using CT pulmonary angiography and dual energy CT scanning, and had observers, independent observers, quantify CT patterns and perfusion defects. And they correlated this with the coagulation status in the patients. And what they showed was this presence of a hypercoagulable phenotype in severe COVID-19 that we now all recognize. And this hypercoagulability is a unique feature of COVID-19 pneumonia, particularly severe COVID-19 pneumonia. And I think the extensive way in which they imaged and characterized this was quite unique and was a very useful paper for us to publish and disseminate to our readership. One aspect that I thought was quite useful of that Wang study was that the lymphocytopenia ended up ha having quite a bit of clinical application in the U.S. before we had widespread testing available when someone presented with signs that were suggestive of COVID and had lymphocytopenia. That was rather useful. One question that I've found interesting when trying to detail the clinical aspects of COVID is how much of those clinical aspects are unique to COVID and how much are things that we might just expect in severe critical illness, severe viral pneumonia, or ARDS, uh, including things like hypercoagulable states? So I think that's an excellent question. And I think it's one that we're getting better at answering. I, I don't think we have the full picture yet, but I think we're getting much better at answering it. There are a lot of features of COVID-19 pneumonia that are comparable to other severe viral pneumonias. Um, but there are also unique features of, of COVID-19 pneumonia, such as the hypercoagulable phenotype as I've discussed with the Patel and, and colleagues paper. So I, I think we do see lots of similarities, but we see some distinct differences. And perhaps by delving down a little bit deeper into each of those, we may be able to better identify patients who might even be co-infected in future when they appear in our hospitals or in ICU, especially if uh, COVID-19 becomes uh, circulating over the long term in the community, even at lower rates. Right, right. One of the distinctive aspects of COVID-19 uh, that ended up getting a lot of attention early on in social media between a bunch of physicians was this concept of uh, an immune response with a lot of doctors talking about cytokine storm that they saw in their patients. And the Blue Journal ended up having a few key publications in that area. Yeah, definitely. I think the immune response has been a real hot topic in the COVID, uh, in the COVID space. And um, there were probably two studies that I think are, are worth highlighting here. Uh, the first one is by uh, McIlvani and colleagues from Dublin, Ireland, who characterized the inflammatory response in severe COVID-19 and in fact concluded that the COVID-19 cytokinemia was distinct in those who were non-hospitalized, in those who were hospitalized but didn't need ICU, and in the ICU-admitted patients. What was particularly strong about that study was that they illustrated the pattern was different in comparison to patients with severe community-acquired pneumonia that required ICU support. They in fact found that IL-1 beta, IL-6, IL-8, insoluble TNF receptor 1 increased in COVID-19 and that ICU patients could be differentiated from milder patients and severe community-acquired pneumonia patients by a characteristically low interleukin-10, which is an anti-inflammatory cytokine. The second interesting finding from their work was the immunometabolic consequences of neutrophils in COVID-19. There are many clinical trials ongoing to, to address anti-neutrophil therapies, uh, especially in preventing severe or critical illness in COVID-19. And so they propose that there may be an immunometabolic reprogramming of neutrophils in severe COVID-19. 
They also make the point that maybe cytokine ratios may be better predictors of outcome rather than individual cytokines, which I think is worthwhile to mention uh, for our listeners. The second study was by Hu and colleagues, uh, which was based in France and compared COVID-19 associated ARDS with non-COVID ARDS in a prospective manner. And they had quite well matched in similar patient groups and interestingly describe a chemokine signature in COVID-19 ARDS with an increased CXCL10 and GMCSF. And that was associated with higher viral burden from the nasopharynx, as well as higher mortality at 28 days. Yeah, those make a pretty compelling argument that COVID is a distinct entity compared to other viral pneumonias. What are your thoughts about the clinical ramifications of these studies? Is it to identify biomarkers that might offer better treatment targets or clinical trial enrichment? I guess what I'm asking is, how do we make these studies relevant to the practicing clinician? So I think super, super question, um, Mike. And um, uh, I think the fact that, you know, there's been so much interest in targeting each of these individual cytokines, both both individually and, and, and wholly, has shown that actually a lot of this, the immune response plays a big role. And many people have described this as a biphasic illness, uh, where early in the illness, it's all virally driven symptoms. And later in the illness, it's the host response. And I think one thing that, that has become obvious taking what we've published and what the wider literature has shown us is that different interventions or treatments at different phases of the illness is probably critical. Giving a particular treatment too early may not be effective. Giving a particular treatment too late might be ineffective. So I think it's not just um, the intervention, it's the timing of the intervention. That's probably the first point. The second point is that we're seeing quite vast patient, patient heterogeneity across COVID-19. And as respiratory clinicians, we're very familiar with that. We see that in our severe asthma patients. We see that in COPD. We see that in bronchiectasis. And it's one of the reasons uh, disease heterogeneity, why why clinical trials in many respiratory diseases have, have really failed to meet their target endpoints. So really, again, this, this makes it even more relevant that when we conduct COVID-related trials, that we enrich those trials for the target group of COVID-19 patients to which that treatment may be best tailored and at the specific time frame within the illness where it may be most beneficial. That's probably what's going to help us achieve uh, endpoints uh, at high frequency and see more successful trials and more treatments available for this disease. Right. I would think not only for this disease, but also for other future viral illnesses. Absolutely. An interesting side effect of this pandemic was the renewed interest in autopsy information. And you had selected a couple of key studies that used postmortem data and that gave insight on the changes of the immune system in COVID. Yeah. So I think this is a really important area of COVID-19 research. And we did publish some nice studies that I will describe. But a, a quick point to make for our listeners is that these studies are especially valuable because the insight and information you can gain from autopsies, as everybody will appreciate, is, is difficult to achieve even with the best and well-designed clinical studies. So I think they do provide insight that we may otherwise not, not know about. So I think the first study was by Doward and colleagues from Scotland, and they asked a very interesting question in that whether an over-exuberant immune response somehow relates to the COVID-19 outcomes that we see. And whether this is a direct result of the virus or an independent process 
And um, in order to answer this, they looked at 11 postmortems and extensive 37 anatomical sites, which revealed that the patterns of inflammation and organ dysfunction that they observed, while predominantly affecting the lung, did not necessarily map to the tissue distribution where they found the virus. And that really primarily tells us that COVID pathogenesis is it may in fact be immune mediated and virus independent in some aspects, particularly in severe disease. The second very interesting study we published very early in the pandemic was from Du and colleagues who, who looked at 85 fatal cases across two hospitals in Wuhan. They showed multi-organ involvement and dysfunction affecting mainly males, again, with lots of comorbidities, so correlating with the clinical studies that we published. And they showed that lower xenophil counts may in fact indicate a poor prognosis. And early in the pandemic, any biomarker or, or pretest um, a screen was very valuable. And so therefore that within that postmortem study was hidden some, some important data that probably helped us in those early phases when we knew very little about this virus. I like that a lot of the autopsy data appeared to be coherent with a lot of the data that we were getting in our live patients. For example, some of the autopsy data demonstrating higher rates of diabetes, which could be associated with uh, increased expression of ACE2. When we were discussing some of these at-risk populations, a lot of people were initially concerned about um, patients with chronic lung disease. And we had a, actually a few publications that demonstrated worse outcomes for patients with ILD and asthma. Uh, would you mind elaborating on those? So yeah, the Blue Journal was particularly interested in, in those patient populations, um, obviously because of our journal scope and our readership and our clinician base. Um, I think we published some very good studies in that, in that area. Uh, the first being one by Drake and colleagues, which was an international multi-center study uh, with the aim to assess hospitalization outcomes in, um, in those who had COVID-19 and um, ILD. And the primary outcome was really survival, but they did include some important secondary outcomes, which included distinguishing between IPF and non-IPF ILD. So they included almost 350 patients, uh, which were uh, recruited across Europe, of which 161 were admitted with COVID-19. And this population had an extremely high mortality rate of 49%. And after matching, ILD patients illustrated an increased risk of death, especially in those who had poorest lung function or who were obese. And these particular signals were then confirmed in another piece of work that we published by Esposito and colleagues from Boston that, looked, uh, that covered six hospitals and 300 plus patients in a case control manner and looked at the risk of having ILD and COVID-19. And they saw an increased odds of severe disease and death again, especially marked in those with advanced age. So clearly there is a mortality signal that is associated with the presence of ILD. And most of our ILD patients are in the older age bracket, which puts them at that even higher risk. The third uh, study that I selected uh, was one by Peters and colleagues that, that employed patients enrolled into the severe asthma research program in the third phase, so SARP-3, that'll be familiar to our listeners. And what, they, and what they really asked was in relation to all the entry factors that we discussed early on in this podcast, ACE2, TMPRSS2 gene expression in the sputum from asthmatics. And they also assessed ICAM-1 expression, which is the rhinovirus receptor as a comparator. So using uh, over 300 patients, as well as including healthy controls, 
They, in fact, found no major differences in gene expression between the asthmatics and the healthies. But interestingly, within the asthmatic group, they found a higher expression of both ACE2 and TMPRSS2 in males, African-Americans, and patients with diabetes, all those who are already inherently at higher risk of poorer COVID-19 outcomes. So potentially within this group of asthmatics, there could be an even higher risk subgroup. And that's what this study probably gives us um, some insight into. The other interesting finding from the study was that in inhaled corticosteroid use was also associated with lower expression of both genes. And um, the authors proposed that prospective studies are warranted, which uh, in the last week or so have already started to emerge in the literature. So that will be an interesting question to answer the true relationship between inhaled corticosteroid use, which many of our chronic respiratory patients are on, and COVID-19 risks. Yeah, I think it's interesting that those studies don't just give information about COVID and chronic lung disease, but also offer a bit of insight into the diseases themselves, including you know, some explanation uh, for why asthmatics might get increased risk for other viral illnesses. Absolutely, and I think the other important general point to make about these patients, because they're so important to us, is that at the start of the pandemic, one of the things that many people started to notice was that respiratory patients appeared underrepresented in the hospital data. And we weren't clear whether that was due to our patients shielding themselves because of the ongoing pandemic or versus um, the emerging concepts that some of their treatments might put them at lower risk, such as inhaled corticosteroids, or in fact, somehow severity of COVID was impacted. So I think What's clear from the literature to date is that any pre-existing lung abnormalities, like for any other infection, puts um, our respiratory patients at greater risk of COVID-19 and potentially outcomes. Um, but one thing we're just beginning to understand is whether the pathology of these diseases and importantly, the treatments that they routinely get associated with these diseases, how they affect susceptibility and outcomes in COVID-19 are really yet to be fully elucidated. Yeah, that's an excellent point. We'll be excited to see the outcomes of those future studies. The past year was an amazing demonstration of what the scientific community can produce when put under pressure. But we've also seen a lot of preliminary studies that have been made less relevant with the passage of time and learning more about the disease or larger, better conducted studies. And 2021 is looking like perhaps COVID may be receding now that we appear to have some effective vaccines. What do you envision are going to be some of the key areas for future investigation in COVID that are still going to be relevant for 2021 and beyond as we move into an era of hopefully containment? So I think before we talk about, you know, um, the future, I think it is important to acknowledge the enormous effort of all of our clinical and research colleagues nationally and internationally. We've made significant progress in understanding, treating and preventing this disease We've now got multiple efficacious vaccine candidates, which is success for science from virus to vaccine in record time. We've developed an evidence base of multiple global clinical trials performed at speed without compromising quality. I think that's really important to say, and that is a, a remarkable achievement for the medical and scientific community. There are, of course, key challenges going ahead, and I think they, they're best categorized as COVID-related and also non-COVID-related. So I think from a COVID-related perspective, the emerging viral variants are, are of particular concern and how that will evolve and spread and how vaccines will, will or will not be effective against them. 
I think communication of appropriate, relatable, and information across media is really important as we go into this next phase. And I think an improved understanding of vaccines as more people and more countries get vaccinated and the long -term, real long-term protection they afford is important, as is global equity and access to those vaccines, because unless everybody's safe, none of us are safe. And I think that's very important to, to reinforce. I think from a non-COVID perspective, it's shown that interdisciplinary research works. Multiple groups, even outside medical communities, work together to tackle this pandemic, from physicists to engineers, et cetera. So interdisciplinary research works and something that should be extended beyond COVID. I think COVID has also brought further attention to other major global threats that we've all been warned about, but we should probably recognize more now. Antimicrobial resistance being one, climate change being another, and thirdly, pandemic preparedness. We were told that something like this could happen, and now that we've lived it and suffered it, um, I think this is probably, hopefully, going to make us better prepared next time. And I think you'll probably see many countries investing in pandemic preparedness strategies. And finally, I think one of the things COVID's brought to the forefront is something we all knew, but probably didn't see it as obviously as we have with COVID, which is the social inequalities in health and healthcare access. In the post-COVID era, this is something we, we need to address and we need to look at and we take the pandemic as showing us what really needs to be done going forward. That's definitely well said. I think this pandemic has demonstrated some of the inequalities that had previously been ignored. Well, this concludes our Out of the Loop podcast. I remain impressed with how rapidly the scientific community has responded to this pandemic, and we've produced some absolutely great science over the past year. I'd like to thank our own Dr. Chodermal for a wonderful interview of some of the most important COVID research to come out of the Blue Journal last year. And although we've covered a lot, there were still quite a few COVID articles that were excellent that we did not have time to cover. And I'd encourage our listeners to please access the webpage and read the articles for yourself. Uh, thank you, Sanjay. Thank you, Mike. This is Michael Lanspa for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.